I don't know if it's an old wives' tale or not, uh, but I have heard, and many of you have maybe have heard as well, uh, that the greater opposition you have in getting to church is the greater indicator that God really wants to do something. God has a message for you, and the enemy's just trying to keep you from getting there. If that is true, in fact, uh, then revival is going to break out this morning. We had a hard time getting here this morning. Uh, we overslept. Uh, we were scrambling around this morning, and if you think that uh, in my house we don't snap at each other when we're late for church, you are mistaken. And so we're all scrambling around and uh, running late, and then I remembered uh, Sean Acree's wife had some surgery this week, and so she's going to be fine, uh, but he was staying at the hospital with her, and so he sent me a text and said, hey, I'm, I'm not going to go home from the hospital. Uh, it's quicker just to come to church. Would you mind to bring me a shirt? And so there I, I'm running late, and I'm ironing Sean's clothes, and so I'm just you know getting more and more angry about it. And so finally, uh, we get out the door, and I'm thinking, I'm, this is the latest I've ever been on a Sunday. I'm usually here by 8.30 or so. And uh, so we're just running late. I'm thinking, I'm going to get there 15 minutes before we start. This is terrible. And so as I'm driving down the interstate, um, I see uh, my wife's car. She had gone with some of the other kids. And so uh, we said, hey, son, we'll pull up next to your mom. And so Tasha's a 10 and 2 driver. And so we're there for a long time. Tasha's just straight ahead. And so finally, I just uh, speed up really close, and she looks over and she laughs and our car begins to tremble and I'm thinking what's what's going on and so the car starts shaking and then it gets more violent and so finally Ethan said dad I think something's wrong with the car and so we kind of drive over to to the uh, edge there and I'm thinking I'm gonna have to pull over and right about the time that uh, I pull over um, I look up in the rear view and the car is shaking violently and, uh, and the, the tire shoots off the car on the interstate and listen I was going like 110 150 I was late all right, God forgive me, legalist. And so, so I, Tasha happens to be right there next to me. She pulls over and I walk up and I knock on the door there and I said, hey, I said, I'm not a mechanic or anything, but I think my tire fell off. And so she's like, I saw it smoking and all this stuff. And so we, uh, we get here and uh, so I text Sean Aker. I said, hey, bud, I, I just got here like 10 minutes before the service start. And so I hung the shirt on your door. And he uh, sends me a text right back, and he said, I'll be there sometime today. He said, I'm broken down on the side of the interstate. <laughs> this is a true story. And I laughed. He wept, and I laughed openly. So I don't know what God wants to do, but it was difficult to get here this morning. And so I'm hoping that is an indicator, in fact, that God wants to speak to us today, wants to do something in our hearts this morning. So uh, my guess is last week, as we've been going through this series called Grow, we got to a little section called Growing in Discernment. And my guess is that last week... Um, Many of you left with, uh, with lots of questions. As a matter of fact, uh, some of you came back just this week uh, because you wanted to get some answers to the questions. And uh, so we're going to walk through a little bit this morning about growing in discernment, uh, and particularly an area that is so frustrating for, for so uh, many people. How, how to know God's will, how to discern God's will. Uh, just on my desk, I've got literally over a thousand uh, pages of written research books, articles, sermons. And so we're not going to answer, answer everything last week. We're not going to answer everything today. There will be a third message uh, next week in Growing in Discernment. We'll wrap up this section of the series. Uh, but the goal has been uh, not to answer every question, uh, the first message even today, but to build a biblical framework. Because the problem is that so many people are operating out of a framework that is not biblical. And so when they start talking about God's will, uh, the foundation is off already. And so therefore, everything they build on uh, is off as well. And uh, so we're going to finish up today building a framework about God's will and the theology of God's will. And when you hear the word theology, don't, don't get nervous. This is a sermon. It's not a lecture, a seminary lecture. Uh, so we are going to make this incredibly practical this morning. But 
I also uh, gave you opportunity. I said, hey, I recognize this is a subject that has lots of questions. As a matter of fact, at the end of the uh, last week, a couple called me. I told you this, and they said, we need part two t- today. Like, well, right now, all right? We got some decisions. And so I allowed people to submit some questions. I'll answer a couple today. You can still do that. And for the last message in this section, I'll answer some as well next week. So, so I got a couple questions I'll walk through this morning. People submitted. Uh, I've grouped two of these together because they're kind of a similar question, just worded different ways. And so here's the first question. It said, does discerning and acting on God's will mean that we will never have difficult days or feel lousy sometimes? And then a second question came in that was kind of a similar uh, question that you can answer them both together. It said this, it, it said, will being in God's will ever make us miserable? Uh, for example, I know that God has me in the job that he wants me in, but I am miserable. And they actually signed their name. Uh, Sincerely, Pastor Lyle Evans. Well, Lyle, whoever you are, I hope you're listening and I hope this is helpful. Well, that that was actually a real question. I just added a little there at the end. Uh, That's a great question. I mean, if my life is not going well, uh, you know, some people would say, well, clearly you're outside the will of God. And and as a result of that, of course, it's not going to go well and all those kinds of things. And so so the question becomes, is being miserable an indicator that I'm outside of God's will or is being happy an indicator that I'm in God's will? Well, that's a great question. There's not a quick answer. And so let me just kind of open up the uh, idea here uh, biblically. Um, Here's what we understand. With only a cursory reading of Scripture... Uh, very quickly, we can conclude that being in the will of God invites suffering into your life. Uh, you say, where do you know that from? I know that from the life of Daniel. I know that from the life of Joseph. I know that from the life of Paul. I know that from the life of uh, John the Baptist. I know that from the life of Jesus and probably every other central character whose lives is played out uh, in Scripture. And so uh, we see that so clearly that all these people clearly used of God, uh, but yet suffering came into their lives, often not as a result of poor choices they made, but as a result of God allowed it into their lives. And so uh, how how do we uh, get so far off track if that is so clear in Scripture? Uh, And the reason is because there is a completely uh, unbiblical but wildly popular idea in American Christianity that goes something uh, like this. Do right by God and he will do right by you. That's, that's popular. It's not biblical. Now, if you mean do right by you in the sense that God will do, do whatever it takes for your spiritual profit, for you to become more like Jesus, you're right. If you mean do right by you in the sense that it's always pleasant and favorable circumstances, you are wrong. When the Bible talks about all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose in Romans chapter 8, it's all things work together for our spiritual profit, not pleasurable circumstances. Some of the greatest growth that will happen in your life is in the midst of difficult seasons. And so the Bible clearly teaches that over and over again. And so uh, many, many times the question is, well, if you're miserable, does that mean you're outside of God's will? No, listen, it could be an indicator. You're exactly where God wants you to be at that point. Now, as a little side note, this may be very helpful for some of you. Uh, If you have controlling people in your life uh, that profess to be Christians, uh, this unbiblical theology is one of the ways uh, they will control you. And you'll never break free from that until you have sound theology uh, in this area. Uh, I have found that uh, some of the most controlling Christians I've ever met somehow have cornered the market on God's will for every other person's life. Have you noticed that? That their life could be a total disaster. But somehow they know the will of God for your life uh, specifically. 
And uh, so, so how do they use that to control us? Well, uh, here's what happens. Uh, so at the first sign of trouble in your life, uh, they would step back and say, see, they didn't want you to do something, some, you know, whatever self-serving motivation, they just didn't want you to do something. They, they said you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do that, and you would listen to them. And so they finally, they threw it up and spiritualized it and said, I don't think God wants you to do that. And at the first sign of trouble in your life, a little suffering comes along, a little trial uh, comes in your life. They step back and say, see, you should have listened to me. Clearly, you're outside the will of God. Look at your life. Look at what's happening. And the problem with that is this, is that being in God's will actually invites suffering into my life. You know who those folks are who are saying that? They are Job's friends. Fast forward a few thousand years. Clearly, you've done something wrong. You should have listened to me. One of the memory verses last year was this. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. And so suffering does not mean you're outside the will of God. Uh, it may, may be an indicator that you're in the will of God, but let me give a little uh, disclaimer uh, as well in that uh, reality because many, many times uh, people would look at their lives and say, well, there's suffering going on, and so therefore I'm out of the will of God. Not, not necessarily true. Uh, sometimes people would look at their life and say, there's suffering going on, and so clearly I'm where God has me. I'm clearly in the refiner's fire. God is clearly pruning me. Well, that may or may not be true, and so you have to discern and invite others to discern with you because sometimes suffering uh, is one of a few different things. It could be consequences from an unwise decision. Uh, sometimes people say, hey, my, my life is hard and I feel like God is testing me and I just have to sit across them and say, well, I, I don't think that's it. I think you're making unwise decisions and the consequences are painful. It has nothing to do with God pruning, nothing to do with God testing, nothing to do with a trial. You keep making bad decisions. Sometimes it's discipline from God over habitual sin. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 said that God disciplines every son whom he receives. Why? Because he's angry? No, because he loves you and wants to bring you back into a right fellowship with him. And so sometimes it could be discipline from God over habitual sin. Uh, sometimes it's sinful attitudes regarding God's provision. Uh, sometimes we're suffering not, not because God hasn't provided, but quite frankly, we don't like how he's provided. God, I, I'm, I just wish you would have given me a better job, a better marriage. I wish you'd let me get into that school or, you know, what, just fill the blank, all kinds of things. And God has made provision, but we don't care for the type of provision that he's made. And so, therefore, we're suffering. In reality, it's not suffering. It's, listen, it's a lack of gratitude. We're miserable because God's provided, but not in the way that we think he uh, should have. And I found this. There are many, many uh, professional sufferers and self-proclaimed martyrs walking around like Eeyores for Jesus, uh, when in fact it has nothing to do with them being in the will of God or outside the will of God. So, long answer to a couple questions. That, that's a great question, because I hear that all the time. Life's going well, I must be in God's will. Life's going bad, I must be out of God's will. That may or may not be true. So here's the second question, and then we're going to look at Psalm uh, 119 again this week, because that, that is a foundational passage that we looked at last week as well. Here's the second question. Uh, what is the difference between the perfect and permissible will of God? Uh, perfect and permissible will of God. Both of those are synonyms for terms that we used last week. The perfect will of God is a similar idea to what we talked about last week, the individual will of God. That, that God only has a, per, there's a perfect, detailed, blueprinted out, very specific will of God for your life. If you misstep it anywhere along the way, you're either outside the will of God or you're settling for second best in God's blessing. And so that, that's the idea of the perfect will of God, permissible uh, will of God. Someone makes some distinction on this, uh, but, but for my theology, the permissible will of God is the same thing as the moral will of God. Uh, where God says, hey, listen, this is my will in your life in this area. This is what I expect from you. This is what I want you to do. This is what I don't want you to do. However, uh, there, God allows you to make choices 
uh, whether or not you're going to obey or disobey his moral will. And those choices are made by real people that have real consequences, good and bad. So God permits us to choose. Despite his clear expression, uh, God permits some choice along uh, that way. So great, great questions. Continue to submit those in, and uh, we'll answer some more next week. So uh, let, let me just uh, recap what we walked through just a little bit as we built the framework uh, last week as it relates to the will of God. So we talked about, uh, and if you're going to talk about God's will, you have to understand these terms. So this, this is not theology filler. This is not, you know, I went to seminary, look at me. Listen, this is incredibly important. All right, And so when we talk about God's will biblically, uh, one of the things we looked at last week was God's sovereign will. Uh, God's sovereign will. God's secret plan that determines uh, how everything plays out in the universe. Now, not secret in the sense that we don't know that Christ is coming back and setting up his kingdom. Not in that. But the means and the timing with which he accomplishes what he does. And God's sovereign plan, of unfolding plan of redemption, is unalterable. Now, the great comfort that should cause you is this. That when you look at the world and it feels like everything is upside down and backwards, the good news is, according to God's sovereign will, the end of the story is not in jeopardy. That what God wants to happen is going to happen. He will cause it or decree it to happen in his sovereign will. Uh, Then we looked at God's moral will. And God's moral will are his revealed commands in the Bible that teach us how we should live and believe. The primary difference between God's sovereign will and God's moral will, God's sovereign will is unalterable. God's moral will, I can choose to obey or disobey, and there will be consequences along the way. The example we used last week was God's moral will in the area of sexual purity. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Uh, Question number one, is it God's will not to engage in sexual sin? Yes. Question number two, do people still do that? Yes. And so how do we reconcile that? It's a part of God's moral will, where God says, this is what I want for you, but I'm not causing that to happen. You have to choose to love me more than you love your sin. All right? So uh, this is the third year we're going to look at, and we'll flesh out today, and we'll spend all of our time today and next week as well. Uh, God's individual will. This is uh, the idea that God has a detailed uh, unique, very detailed, blueprinted life plan for each single person in every single scenario. Uh, what car to buy, what street to live on, uh, who to marry, what job to take, grape or strawberry. And I told you the answer to that one last week, all right? All the things that cause us so much anxiety in life, all wondering. Uh, many, many people, uh, Bible teachers, refer to this idea of God's individual perfect will as the spot theory. Uh, Meaning that if I'm not standing on the very exact spot in this exact scenario, given these exact circumstances, then I'm in danger of being outside the will of God at worst, or at best, I'm settling for God's second best in my life because uh, I somehow misread the perfect, detailed, blueprinted uh, will of God in my life in this area. And so that's what a lot of people think as it relates to God's individual will or synonym is his perfect will or synonym is the spot theory. And this is the area that causes us uh, so much anxiety. And I would contend that the reason that so many people suffer from uh, unbiblical uh, theology is in this area of God's individual will. So we're going to look at this week, some theology related to it. And then next week, we're going to be very, very practical. Here's how to navigate all of what we taught. All right? So if that sounds good, say amen. Do it because that's what I was going to do anyway. All right. So let's look at Psalm 119 again, not because I don't know other passages that speak about God's will, but because this is a foundational one. Uh, This is my guess is what all of you want in your life. Uh, So let's look at the same passage we looked at last week. Uh, Psalm 119, verses 33 down through verse 37. Uh, Teach me, O Lord, 
the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies, and not to covetousness. And I can never say that. Uh, Verse 37, turn away from my eyes from looking at worthless things, and revive me in your way. And so that, that is the heart of every person who's ever wondered, what is God's will for my life? This is a person who, who's not, you know, this is a person who's saying, hey, Lord, if you'll just show me your paths, I'll walk in it. If you're saying that these things I'm pursuing are worthless, then, then I will turn my eyes from them. This is a person who, much like many of you, want to know the will of God for your lives. And so the question becomes, well, how do I do that? What what does that look like? And what should I be doing to uh, discern that? If we're talking about uh, growing in discernment, uh, how do I discern? Uh, I love what he says there, verse 37, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. How many of you have walked down a path in your life that filled with blank, doesn't matter what kind, and you got to the end of that path, you're thinking, whose dumb idea was it to do this? Like, how in the world did I get here? And you clearly look back and say, what a disastrous thing this was. I spent all this time and the end result is disastrous. And on the front end, it looked like a good idea. Matter of fact, you would have argued on the front end, it was not only a good idea, it was a God idea. God spoke and God led me and God opened doors and y'all filling all the blank of all those things we say. And it's disastrous. And so the question becomes, how do we navigate this idea uh, that God has a will for my life. How do I discern uh, what that looks like? And so uh, I'm just going to make one point. And we're going to totally exhaust it this morning, and then we'll be done. Uh, so here's the question. How do we navigate the uh, idea of God's individual or perfect will for my life? Right? That's what we all want to know. And so step one, uh, write this down. Reject it. Reject it. Uh, the single uh, most important thing you will learn that will give you the greatest amount of peace regarding the perfect blueprinted individual will of God for your life is that that does not uh, exist. That there's way more freedom within the boundaries of God's moral will than most people ever even realize. And I realize that for some of you, that rocks your theology. Because that's what you've been taught, that's what you've been building your life on, that's what someone else taught you, that's what someone used to control you and condition you to the point that you just assumed it should be true. Uh, But the reality is, what should decrease your anxiety is recognizing that within the boundaries of God's moral will, often there are multiple God-honoring choices that you don't have to stand and be paralyzed. Am I on the spot? And wondering, am I missing out on what God wants to do if I choose A instead of B? I I just got to tell you this. Listen, there's not enough ambient in the world that could put me down at night if I had to sit and walk through every single decision I made that day and wonder, was I on the exact spot in that moment, in that circumstance, in that scenario where I was perfectly in the will of God or did I miss it? But many, many people live their lives that way, putting out fleeces, all these kinds of things all the time. We'll walk through uh, some of that this morning. And so uh, the only time that God's blessing is diminished if you don't make a perfect answer uh, is that if you just oftentimes ignore him totally, just just totally uh, ignoring his leadership uh, in your life. 
And so what the Bible teaches, you and I don't have to worry about the sovereign will of God. Why? Because it's going to happen. You and I should worry about the uh, moral will of God where God expresses his desire, but within the boundaries of God's moral will, there is a lot more freedom for you and I to make God-honoring decisions apart from the anxiety of I'm on the exact only spot in the world I could ever be on right now in this scenario and be in the perfect will of God for my life. And we'll get to that a lot more uh, next week. So the reality is uh, for some of you that, that, that makes you nervous. Uh, for some of you, it's incredibly liberating. Uh, and so let me give you a couple of disclaimers. Number one, uh, great freedom equals great responsibility. Great freedom equals great responsibility. And so how do I take this freedom that I have and exercise it in a wise and God-honoring way as it relates to discerning the will of God for my life? That's, that is the, all of our time next week will be spent right there on that question. What does it look like to navigate this freedom we have in a wise and God-honoring way? So we'll spend some time there. And so, uh, but here is disclaimer number two. And so before I get into this, I just have to ask you this morning. Do you, in fact, have your big boy pants and your big girl pants on this morning? Do you have, in fact, your thinking cap on this morning? If all those things are true, would you raise your hand? The rest of you, would you raise your hand if you're here? Just to encourage me a little bit, all right? Yeah, so, because here's why. We're going to paddle into some deeper waters here for a little bit. And this is not filler. This is not to say, oh, I'm smart, you know, whatever. Listen, this is incredibly practical and relevant as it relates to the theology of building out God's will for your life. This is so important, all right? So here's disclaimer number two in trying to discern what it is that God wants you to do in life. Uh, disclaimer number two is this. There is a difference in the Bible uh, between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. There is a difference in the Bible between what is descriptive uh, and what is uh, prescriptive. In other words, there are some events uh, to show how God worked in human history, how God's sovereign plan is unfolding, how God moved among his people to accomplish his sovereign purpose. And that's totally there so you can see how God moved and the plan of God is moving and the character of God is revealed, but they're descriptive in nature. They're not prescriptive for you and I to go, oh, I read a story in the Old Testament and, uh, you know, they just, you know, they want to hear from God and they want to worship God, so they cut their dog in half and so, here, boy. Now, if you had a cat, that might be fine to do if you had a cat, but not a dog, right? Some of you are mad, you're not coming back. But many times we, we take things that were descriptive in the Bible and we pull them out of context and we go, well, this is how that happened, so this is how it's supposed to happen today. It's a how-to kind of thing when it's not. It's descriptive in nature, showing us the character of God. Now, let me give you a key indicator. When someone does not understand that, when someone does not uh, understand the, the, the difference between descriptive and prescriptive in the Bible, uh, one of the key things they will say is this, uh, you're putting God in a box. I'm not putting God in a box. I'm taking God at his word. Uh, another thing they'll say is this, uh, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so if God did it in the Bible, then God uh, wants to do it today. That is a clear indicator of a person who does not understand in interpreting Scripture the difference between what is descriptive and what is uh, prescriptive. Now, uh, very often that person will end up holding to some form of uh, charismatic theology, and that's not a condemnation, that's just an observation, so don't go out here uh, misquoting me. But you have to discern the reality is simply this. Now, if you're listening, say amen. When the Bible talks about God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, what it's describing there is the nature and character of God is unchanging. One of the attributes of God is he is immutable. He never changes. 
What it's not talking about is the manner in which God relates and moves and unfolds his plan among his people. That has changed. How do I know that? Because we're sitting in a New Testament church. We're no longer under the law of Moses requiring to make sacrifices anymore. Jesus is no longer walking amongst uh, us today physically. There was a period of time uh, between the Old and New Testament, 400 years of silence, where God never spoke to any prophets to the people, called the intertestamental period. Does that mean that God changed? No, God was still holy. God was still love. God was still merciful. But during that time, the method in which God communicated, or actually didn't communicate, it changed. And so many, many times people don't understand that. Well, the Bible talks about God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so how God speaks to people then is how God speaks to people today. They don't understand the difference between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive uh, in the Bible. We'll get to a little more of that here uh, in just a minute. And so, for example, uh, we're no longer under the Mosaic Law. We're under uh, grace. Uh, Much of the Old Testament is a record of how God related to Israel under his covenant. Therefore, it's descriptive. And so lots of times people are claiming promises. I see it all over Facebook. People are claiming promises that were promises God made to the nation of Israel, not to us. And so many times people don't understand the difference for that. For example, uh, when God needed to speak to them, they didn't have the word of God. Uh, God spoke audibly part of the clouds. When God wanted to send a message along to them, uh, he called Charlton Heston up a mountain. Wrote some words down, the first text message, amen, right there. Sent him back down. And listen, if you tell me, listen, I I feel like God's, if I see you walking around carrying some rocks, saying that you're going up the mountain to hear from God, I'm just going to assume you're on drugs, all right? Because that was a unique experience that is descriptive of how God related to his people at that point in time. Gideon's fleece, descriptive. We'll address that in detail next week. So think about this. Uh, when you think about this, most people, uh, they, they get it when it comes to Old Testament, New Testament, right? Like I get it. You know, like I don't walk into worship service and think, what's going to happen today? You bring a guest, what's going to happen today? We're going to sing some songs. We're going to pray. And, and at some point in time, pastor's going to bring out a goat or a young bull if he's broke, some birds, and he's going to cut him in half. It will be awesome. Right? And so we understand the difference between Old Testament and New Testament, but what gets us into trouble, and this is all relevant for the God's will discussion, what gets us into trouble is that we don't understand that the first part of the New Testament is historical in nature. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are historical books revealing the historical account of when Jesus walked the earth. The book of Acts is a historical book, how God played out and began the church of the day of Pentecost. And so therefore, some things that you read in those first five books are historical and descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive for how you should do things today. Now, let me connect the dots on that little theology, and uh, it makes a real difference in how you discern God's will. Sometimes uh, you you will see very detailed and specific things that God did in Scripture. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Ruth and Boaz. Like, like, you know, just we look at that, there's all these things, and so we look at that. Uh, Rebecca and Jacob, where it appears they had to make very specific decisions uh, to, to do that. And, and what we're, we're failing to realize is that we're getting a descriptive historical account of the decisions that were made, how God unfolded his plan in their lives. But that is not descriptive of how we operate today. Now, you say, I don't agree with that. Then here's what you should do. When a single guy comes to you and says, hey, I'm looking for a woman, 
You should tell him, hey, I got a great idea. I've got a water well behind my house. Walk out there and stand there and eventually a good looking woman will show up. You think, well, that's nuts. That's nuts, why? Because that was a descriptive event, not prescriptive of how we should do things today. Let me just make a little comment. And I don't have time to develop it. We'll develop it next week. Let me make a little comment. Here's what you need to understand. In all of these Old Testament people that we're looking at, in all of the people recorded in the Gospels, in all of the people in the book of Acts up to the day of Pentecost, they did not have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to guide them. And we do. We do. And that's an enormous difference. They did not have the full canon and revealed word of God. We do. And so God spoke and moved differently. The character of God never changed, but the method in which God spoke and communicated to his people and led them uh, changed and how he revealed his will during that point in time. It absolutely uh, has changed. And so uh, raise your hand if you're still here. Good. Let me further connect the dots. Many, many times uh, we wonder, uh, well, who cares? Should we read the Old Testament even? Should we read the Gospels and the book of Acts if they're historical and descriptive? Absolutely. Because even in descriptive historical books, listen, the character of God is still being revealed by the events that are being described. And the challenge is uh, we have to discern what's the eternal timeless truths that we see at work and what are the cultural distinctives. And so absolutely you should read those things. Absolutely we should teach those things. Absolutely we should gain wisdom from those things. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, what that means is this. If you're a signs and wonders person, and I've met lots of people who are signs and wonders people, lots of people who like to put out fleeces in determining God's will, If you're a signs and wonders person when it comes to discerning God's will for your life based upon, well, I saw this in the Gospels. That's what they did. I saw that in the book of Acts. That's what they did. Then you don't understand the difference between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive in interpreting the will of God uh, for your life. And that lack of understanding will put you in a very dangerous place when it comes to discerning God's will. Let me give you a description of a person who is a signs and wonder person. You know, I want a sign from God. I I want God to rain down fire again like he did there with Elijah. I want a burning bush. I want to lay out a fleece. A person who wants to hear from God uh, in that manner uh, is a person who says, you know what? I I feel like God's will is for me to move out west and start all over. I'm just going to get a new life. I'm going to get a new new address. I'm I'm going to move out west. But God... I only want to do it if you want me to. And so before they lay their head down at night, they pray and say, God, if it's your will, give me a sign. In other words, they they laid out a fleece. Give me a sign. And so they go to bed and they wake up. They don't set their alarm. They say, God, you wake me up. Spiritual. They wake up and they look over the clock and the clock reads 747. They jump out of the bed and say, I'm leaving on a jet plane. We laugh, but I, I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had like that. Listen, they'll spiritualize all kinds of disconnected events and try to connect them together and say, look, God's at work because, because of look at all these circumstantial things. And does God work through circumstances? Yes, but it's dangerous. We'll talk about that next week. And does God open doors? Let me just tell you something. 
Sometimes an open door leads off a cliff. God gave a sign. You know what else God gave? Wisdom. And the indwelling presence of God. And many, many times in my life and in your life as well, when God gave a sign, what happens is we wanted to do it anyway. We waited for some event and then we uh, said it's God's will. And if you argue with me, you're arguing with God. Signs and wonders and fleeces and all those kinds of things. Not realizing again that all these things are descriptive. And yes, there's principles to learn. Yes, there's, God reveals his character. Uh, but the reality is we have the indwelling Spirit of God living inside us, prompting us, guiding us, that they did not have. Matter of fact, Jesus had some strong words for people who always wanted a sign from God. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, Jesus replied, Only an evil and adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And so Jesus said, hey, listen, just like Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, I'll be three days and nights in the belly of the earth. And so you need a sign that I'm the Messiah. The sign is the resurrection. And signs and wonders were tools often in the Gospels. Here, here's what you need to do today. Go back and read through the Gospels and see how many times signs and wonders were done in the presence of unbelieving Jews. Why? Because they needed to know for a fact that they, they could not fathom as God's chosen people, that God was now opening up access to himself to non-Jews, unclean people. And they just said, I, I won't hear of it. They wouldn't listen to the prophets. And so to authenticate the message, God gave signs and wonders to show them, hey, this really is from me, as evidenced by, boom. That's why the Bible says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 says this, For Jews request a sign, and Greeks after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. You need a sign? Here's what he's saying. Here's a sign. God's going to raise me from the dead. And so the question is, does God still perform miracles today? Listen, write this down, quote me, tweet this, put it on Facebook. God, absolutely. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He's God. God exists outside the realm of time and space. God can do a miracle anytime he wants. However, do we see that as his primary method of relating to and leading his people? No. No, that was a unique time in apostolic history. But now we have the indwelling presence of God and the word of God. And the Spirit of God guides us as the Word of God comes alive in our hearts. Well, the timer says I have 30 seconds. So, if seeking out signs and putting out fleeces is not the best way to discern the will of God, and the Bible says I have a lot more freedom than I have to stay on this one little spot or I'm outside the will of God in my life, how do I responsibly exercise that freedom in a way that honors God? Well, you show up next week and I'll tell you. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that while many times in our lives we don't, we don't always know exactly what you want us to do and how to do it, the one thing we never have to question is your love for us. And that was never more evident than the cross of Christ. you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Savior, 
And the will of God for your life is to be saved. God's will is that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9. We looked at the verse last week in 2 Timothy. It says the same thing. That's God's moral expressed will for your life. That you can choose belief or you can choose unbelief. Both have consequences. One is eternal life with God in heaven. One is eternal separation from God in hell. And God's given you a choice this morning to choose to believe Jesus Christ for salvation. And so if you're here this morning and you're not saved, you're not sure if you're saved, you say, I would love to, love to know for sure that I've received Christ as my Savior. I'm going to invite you just to pray with me. There's no magic words in a prayer, but it's the faith of the, that saves a person. God, I know that you love me as evidenced by what Jesus did on the cross. But God, when I compare my life to the life of Jesus, I have to confess that I'm a sinful person. That I'm desperately in need of forgiveness for my sins. I can't save myself. I'm not good enough. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose the third day so that I can have eternal life. And so today I surrender my life to Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for saving me. Father, I pray for all those in the room who may be on the verge of some important decisions in life. Job opportunities, relationships, financial decisions, decisions about their health, decisions about parenting, all the things that keep us up at night. God, I pray that they would have a growing sense of your leadership in their lives. God, I pray that you would not cause them unnecessary anxiety. Scared if you're going to punish them. They step outside of making a decision that you give them freedom about. And so, Father, more than ever, help us to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit. Help us to dive into the Word of God so that we can see the character of God revealed to His people no matter when it was in history. Your character has never changed. Same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we say thank you that in a world that's upside down and changing, we have a God who never changes. Thank you for that. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.